Hi, I'm Kelly. And I'm Lavinia. Welcome to There She Goes, where women writers share true stories of travel. Their stories, their experiences, told in their own voices. One of the reasons we started this podcast is that the first time Kelly and I met, we told each other travel stories. We were complete strangers, but after spending just a few hours trading stories about experiences in Morocco and South Korea, Italy and Greece, we were friends. Our travel stories connected us. We recognized them as important. And we came away from that first meeting feeling validated and inspired. This is the power of women's personal travel narratives. Consider our storytelling podcast a brand new passport, transporting you every week to a different place for a brief escape, sometimes far away, other times closer to home. Consider our storytellers your brand new travel friends, your sidekicks and sisters and guides. Or even therapists. And consider this your chance to hear some of the stories you may have missed. There She Goes is that simple. No chit-chat, no interviews. Just great storytelling by women travelers. We invite you to settle in for the adventure. Today, in honor of Father's Day, we travel around the world with Naomi Malati Bishop as she recounts her father's spectacular adventures and takes us on a mission to honor his final wishes. Naomi was born in Indonesia to old soulmates, a Javanese princess and a wild New Yorker dad. She moved to New York City when she was 11, where she currently resides with her daughter and partner. Naomi earned her MFA at NYU's graduate creative writing program and works as a writer, editor, and teacher. She runs an editing service and is currently at work on her first book, a memoir about her mysterious origins, new motherhood, her parents' love story, and her inheritance of worldwide adventures. I'm Naomi Malazzi Bishop, reading my story, Stolen Tickets. Dad created myths and lived them. He'd take me on 3 a.m. walks in strange cities and tell me wild stories about how he helped overthrow the Suharto regime, how he was blacklisted in Indonesia, how my mother's death when I was seven years old was a possible murder plotted by the regime, and that's why we had to sleep with a baseball bat under our pillow. But recently, I learned this. Gordon, also known as Dad, and his ex-girlfriend Uta, a countess and a model, traveled the world on stolen plane tickets. If it weren't for these stolen tickets and the journey they took him on, I wouldn't exist. He told me about all of his adventures, including the crime of the stolen tickets, again and again, like bedtime stories, though I'm aware that just because his self-fulfilling folktales were vivid doesn't mean they were necessarily accurate. I gathered them from the memory bank he shared, as well as from the journals and photos he left behind. I've spent the years since my father's death traveling across the world chasing truths about his life and spreading his ashes. That was his dying wish, for me to deliver him across oceans and continents, smack dab in the heart of every city, every beach, and every memory. The stolen plane tickets arrived on a rainy summer evening in 1971 when a Black Panther showed up at his doorstep in Berkeley, drenched and desperate for a place to hide. A gun was tucked inside the sleeve of his leather jacket. Gordon invited him in for coffee at a joint. Can I crash here? The Black Panther asked. Sure, man. You got money to chip in? Gordon asked. 
I've got something better than money, the Black Panther said. He drew a lockbox from his wet backpack. Inside were 60, 90, maybe 100 sets of blank airline tickets. So-and-so's friend works for Pantas. She brought these home, he explained. These are good for getting you anywhere in the world. You go to the airport and you have your agent write out the ticket, one destination at a time. But you can't stay longer than three weeks. You have fun, you lose track of time. If that happens, tear up the first pack and start over with a fresh pack. Don't let anyone catch on. You see, these tickets are, I catch your drift, Gordon said. Take as many as you'd like, but be careful, man. That's how folks end up having three babies in each continent. Gordon smirked, snatched four blank ticket books, and built a makeshift bed for his new guest in the walk-in closet. He spun a globe he kept to watch it where his finger would land, a nightly routine that calmed his frenetic thoughts. Let's run away, his girlfriend Uta said shortly after my dad received the tickets. Somewhere new, somewhere far and exotic. So my father and Uta zigzagged across nations and time zones and cultures. Gordon's charm and Uta's regal beauty opened doors. Together, they befriended royalty, politicals, artists, businessmen, shamans, and indigenous folks around the world. On the stolen tickets, they'd eventually hop to France, Italy, Mexico, Australia, Tahiti, Fiji, Nepal, Brazil, Afghanistan, Singapore, and Indonesia. At each destination, Gordon would buy a small souvenir and slip it into his pale green attache case, which he eventually gave me. At LAX in 1971, prepared for their first journey, my father let Uta do all of the talking while he hid. Uta wore a floor-length cream dress and hoop earrings. She spoke to the agents without hesitation. Her English, tinged with French and German overtones, made her seem worldly, and she was quick on her feet, handy traits for negotiating at international airports. Meanwhile, my father, with his long hair and blue eyeshadow, which he wore almost daily, hid in a kiosk, sweating profusely in a velvet bell-bottomed tuxedo and cowboy boots, one gold and the other silver. The next flight to Paris is in six hours, the agent said, handing Uta two tickets. You're a sorceress, Gordon said to his partner, just like all the other fairy tale witches from the Black Forest. They made it through security without raising an eyebrow and shared a high from the rush of not getting bagged. On board the plane, they ordered champagne and toasted to Utsarella and Gordon Zola. Gordon added, don't things taste better when they're free? In Paris, they hitched a ride to Hotel Le Maurice to pay an unannounced visit to their mutual friend, Salvador Dali, with whom they'd lived in an artist commune years prior. Ah, it's the man who plans to eat a car. Enter, Dali said, twisting his wispy gelled mustache into tiny knots. He was referring to the title of the collage book Gordon had made for Dali, a pictorial story about a German auto enthusiast who planned to eat a car. It was still prominently displayed on Dali's coffee table, its pages now brown from touch. It's a masterpiece, Dali said. My father let Dali in on the secret about the plane tickets. Go to Bali, Dali said decisively. There's magic there. Dali tore out some of the drawings and handed them to Gordon. For you. Gordon put the sketches in his pale green attache case, wedged between the blank tickets. Next stop, Kabul. Afghanistan, at the time, was facing a wave of freedom, a golden era of modernity and democratic reform. Women attended universities, often in miniskirts, and worked for parliament. Tourists flocked to Kabul, curious about the mystic East and lured by the beauty of the city's ancient sculptures, sprawling gardens, and surrounding snow-capped mountains. 
Gordon and Uta followed the Silk Road and visited the Banyaman Buddhas. They frequented Sijis on Chicken Street to exchange ideas with fellow travelers. They bathed in the Kabul River. They slept in a large room on thick carpets along with 20 or 30 other tourists. They made love in secret. Hedonistic hippies, freaks, heads, and other tourists came to Afghanistan for spiritual quests and adventure, or else to escape the humdrum of convention. Painted VW vans purred down the streets. Kabul was a destination on the infamous overland hippie trail, deemed the Paris of Asia. Most people with stolen plane tickets ended up there. This fact made Uta nervous. We should leave, Uta urged. We'll get caught. Relax, Gordon said. We won't. Gordon was having fun. He'd lost track of time. He grew a beard and walked around barefoot until the soles of his feet grew tough like elephant hide. He took mescaline and wrote poetry under the pen name Dubjinsky Barefoot. He haggled at the market and bought a knife inlaid with mother of pearl. He wrote postcards that he never sent, no money for stamps. He picked fights with Uta about nothing in particular. Three weeks had ticked along. It was time to board the plane again. Just as they were heading for the airport, the ground shook. A damaging earthquake. The northern region was in ruins. Air travel was suspended. Soon after, they flew to India. In their hotel in New Delhi, the phone rang. It was the airline agency. Madame, you'd better come into the office. There's a problem with your book of tickets. Uta's voice shook. I want to leave New Delhi now. Her throat felt tight. Yes, madame, but you must first come into the office. The agent's tone intensified and became more threatening. They're on to us, Uta told Gordon. They shredded the first book and headed to the airport. With frantic fingers, Gordon handed Uta the unused tickets. She approached the counter. Behind the desk where the agent stood was a poster that read, Do not accept any stolen plane tickets written out at Contas in San Francisco on 10 May 1971. That was exactly what was written on their tickets. Uta willed herself to appear calmer, more regal. I'm sorry, madame, the agent said. I cannot issue you this ticket. You'll have to go to our office in New Delhi. Please, sir, Uta begged. There is a flight to Bali in one hour. I have some dignitaries I must meet. The man's face softened. He placed the tickets on the counter. Uta and my father got through security. At customs, someone tapped Uta on the shoulder. Her heart fell to her knees. Madame, you forgot your hand luggage, a stranger said. Phew. On the flight, as they were celebrating the close encounter over wine, the captain announced, Ladies and gentlemen, please prepare for landing. We are making an unscheduled stop in Mumbai. The plane is landing so they can arrest us, my father said, certain. They rehearsed what they'd say to the officers, escape routes mapped in their mind, each magnified the other's anxiety. They snapped their eyes shut as they landed. It was just a stop for fuel. According to my father's journals, they happened to land in Bali on Kuningan, a day marked by ancestral spirits descending from the heavens. Whenever someone would ask his profession, Gordon would say something outlandish with a serious face like, I'm a traveling merchant salesman, a booming business of vaginal wigs. Most of the time, they believed him. By this point, they'd burned through the stacks of stolen tickets the Black Panther had given them. 
His mother wired him a monthly stipend, but he made the bulk of his cash by grifting at the airport bars, selling language pills to people intrigued by how many languages he pretended to speak. Early stages of a test conducted by the CIA, he'd say. You'd see, when God knocked down the Tower of Babel, he divided our tongues. Turns out, all those languages are still encoded in our DNA. Where can I? It's a closed experiment, he'd say. I shouldn't have told you. And somehow an extra bottle of sugar pills would happen to be in his pocket. A handshake and a few hundred dollars would be exchanged. Gordon and Uta rented a motorcycle. They bought traditional sarongs. Uta tucked a red hibiscus behind her left ear. They went to trance dances where villagers would stab their bare chests with steel blades and protected by black magic remain unscathed. They attended cremations and ceremonies, slaughterings, exorcisms, and week-long meditations. They fought and made love in the dense jungle that clung to the hillsides, along the serpentine streets, on rice paddies, near ancestral temples, and beneath sacred banyan trees. As their spiritual search deepened, their paths diverged. Uta was content to stay in Bali. Gordon was getting antsy. He craved a change of pace. They fought more about trivial things like the way the other's hair was parted. Find yourself a patient Javanese, Uta said to Gordon, her tone bittersweet. I'm not your girl anymore. They made love one last time, sad but resolute. In 1973, he left her in Bali with her new Balinese boyfriend in the land of gods. He found a map and let his fingers decide his next steps. Special region of Jogjakarta an ancient city on the Indonesian island of Java. In 1974, Gordon found himself in the midst of Indonesia's Independence Day Parade in Yogyakarta. He was surrounded by thousands of villagers who gaped at him from afar, who inched closer to touch his white skin, or else gasped as they watched him eat a chicken skewer with his left hand, the devil's hand. A group of dancers unfolded their limbs like petals. Gamelan music vibrated, Gongs sounded, skinny horses and wizened men sat lazily in parked pedicabs, bare and filthy feet peeking out from batik sarongs. Teenagers jammed to Bob Dylan. Sultans were hoisted above the crowd in gilded carriages. People shouted, Merdeka! Independence! Gordon heard a laugh, like wind chimes. He followed the sound to a woman with smiling red-stained lips and a hip-hugging mini-dress a site far too modern and incongruous in a town renowned as the heart of traditional Javanese culture, where many women, including the one accompanying her, resisted Western influence by continuing to wear classic batik sarongs and lace blouses. A purple orchid was pinned to the brazenly dressed woman's hair. Her cheekbones were high. She was a ghost of a woman whose force was so overpowering that looking at her turned him on, but also kind of hurt him. She was strolling arm in arm with another woman who was carrying a baby in a batik sling. They walked toward each other, standing inches apart for the few moments their paths intersected. Sweat beads trailed Gordon's brows. His hands shook. She turned her gaze toward him. Their eyes locked. She blushed, but she didn't look away. The loquacious and never shy Gordon stood transfixed and mute as they flirted with their eyes for pregnant minutes. All of the pickup lines he had never used, and some he hadn't, flashed through his mind, but none seemed appropriate, especially after translating them into his far-from-fluent Indonesian. 
When he got up the nerve to introduce himself, he was so tongue-tied he couldn't speak. Instead, he went to buy loose cigarettes in a nearby kiosk. From the corner of his eye, he saw her leaving the parade. He sped after her, elbowing passersby, but she vanished into the crowd. For the next 34 days, Gordon waited where his roommate Jono thought he had seen her, atop the highest perch of Tamansari Castle, now ruins, his legs and binoculars dangling high above Jogjakarta's bustling bird market. Word spread about the foreigner in the watchtower looking for love. Curious kids joined him. Others came and brought him daily offerings of magic love potions made of reptile blood and minced ginger, which he drank happily and hopefully. Several times he thought he saw her, mounted his bike, and pedaled off in hot pursuit with his heart thumping a mile a minute, only to find out it was someone else. Rainy season came and left. It was 1975 and my father had been in Jogjakarta for two years, roughly four years since his trip with Uta had first begun. He walked along a quiet lane during sunset, his head hung low. His thoughts wandered to life in New York City. His parents had offered to pay for the 10,000 mile journey home. Penniless and heartbroken, he weighed this option. He had a yen for a hot dog from Grey's Papaya, a cheesecake from Carnegie Deli, a midnight subway ride. Gordon looked up. At that moment, he spotted a familiar woman. He took out his binoculars. To his astonishment, it was the other woman from the parade who was accompanying his love, with the same baby slung onto her hip, only now doubled in size. He ran up the staircase panting. The woman gasped. A look of shock struck her lips, which quickly morphed into a smile. You're that foreigner from the Merdeka parade, she said immediately. Gordon was surprised she remembered him. This gave him a boost. We thought you were just passing through like most white guys, boules, she said. Please, Gordon begged, lapsing into his unpolished way. Give me her address. I can't, she said. But then she took out a pencil and a pink receipt and began to scribble. Here. Nanis, it read. If you love her enough, you'll find her. He liked this game. Gordon and Anise's auspicious wedding date was set by local Javanese mystics. Uta received word of Gordon's impending marriage and flew from Bali to halt the wedding. She appeared as a tall, blonde apparition in a lemon sundress. As soon as Gordon saw her, he felt the deep glow of old friendship. When Uta met his new bride, a princess and a dancer from the royal court, she surrendered. She found Anise's beauty to be poetic and non-threatening, the rare kind of beauty that made you want to look more like yourself than like her. Uta saw how he guarded Nanise like treasure. He had grown up, moved on. He'd even cut his hair. Nanise centers me in my deepest soul, he told Uta. She gives me balance to my tightroping spirits way up there in the rainbow-filled sky of my universal being. She turns my shitty aspects into gold. Seeing Nanis and Uta together in juxtaposition, contrasting and complementary, was almost a visionary experience for Gordon. Two hemispheres of his heart, two worlds, peacefully colliding. Nanis, with her Javanese celestial-like peace, seemed a perfect match to temper Gordon's volatility. What more did Uta really want for her great love than to wish him well? It was time for her to leave Indonesia, to close this chapter and travel home, overland through Asia and Europe, back to Paris. Visions of them floating hand in hand in the Red Sea looped in her mind. There'd be no more Uzzarella, no more Gordonzola.
Uta exited the scene. But she never left the scene entirely. When I was a teenager, motherless, dad flew me transatlantic to visit her twice a year. He wanted me to taste mother love. He said Uta was his gift to me, that without her, I probably wouldn't exist. She taught me how to make gazpacho, how to apply lipstick expertly, how to retain my mystery. To this day, Uta is still the person I call when I'm feeling down because I know she will console me. I visited her in 2007 at her home in Ibiza, Spain. Dad had died six months earlier on the 32nd anniversary of his and Nanisa's wedding day. I have something for you, I said, reaching into Dad's pale attache case where he used to keep his ticket books, long used up, and Dolly's drawings, now lost. His ashes. I want you to have some. Before I said another word, Uta reached across the table, swiped the baggie from me, and dunked her finger inside. She lifted her dusty finger to her lips and sucked on it. Now he's inside me. He'll never leave me, she said. I laughed. Cancer stole his eye, his breast, and his leg, but he still came to you, flew here. You were his final destination. He was haunted and charmed, she said. Destiny can play dirty tricks. We ate paella and looked out at the Mediterranean Sea twinkling and fading in the evening sky. I can't taste the food, Uta said. I still taste him. He doesn't want to leave. He'll never have to leave. Even death wouldn't stop my father from traveling. I've now scattered his ashes across 39 countries and counting. It was his wish but it has also been my way of immortalizing him so I could keep him close to me and minimize the grief of losing him. As long as I had his ashes, I felt safe. But recently, I was on a family holiday in Costa Rica with my partner and my seven-month-old baby. My daughter was playing and cooing in her tent under a vast canopy of palm trees. My lover was chanting mantras to a Hindu god. I went for a swim, and there was nobody for as far as the eye could see. As I rose from the water, a dozen horses came out of nowhere, galloping across the sand, zigzagging past us on the deserted beach at dusk. It was a moment so beautiful, I wanted to spread my father's ashes. Back on the sand, I fumbled in my purse for the tiny jar, but realized I'd left them behind this time. It felt strange to not engage in this ritual, to not be connected with my father at every meaningful moment. All at once, I was overcome by a vast sense of freedom. I looked at my daughter and found him immortalized in the wild twinkle of her eye, in the horizons that loom in mine. Now we are his around-the-world plane tickets. You've been listening to There She Goes a storytelling podcast created by two women travelers and recorded from their homes in Alabama and Louisiana. Our theme music is a selection from the song City of Refuge, created and performed by Abigail Washburn. Thanks to Jay Burgess for engineering. Thanks to our amazing writers for proving how essential women's stories are and for bringing their voices to There She Goes. And thanks to you, our listeners, for coming along. We hope you'll be back next week for another story and another stamp in your new passport.